with Take Me to the Church, a song about homophobia and the Catholic Church. It was released a year or so before Ireland's referendum on same-sex marriage. Now, that referendum provides part of the context for the latest novel from best-selling Irish writer John Boyne. Although he's best known for his young adult Holocaust novel The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, his last few books have been adult books and closer to home. A History of Loneliness was the story of a good man, a priest, who had to confront the terrible things going on within his church. And the latest one, The Heart's Invisible Furies, is the story of a man named Cyril Avery. John Boyne is speaking here to Kate Evans. John Boyne, thank you so much for speaking to us again on RN. Thank you. So although this book's a life story of Cyril Avery, it begins not long after his conception and it goes right to the heart of the hypocrisy of the Catholic Church in Ireland. Why was this the right place to start for you? Well, I wanted to examine Ireland over a long period of time. And I thought if you begin just at the end of the war in 1945 and follow him all the way through to a couple of weeks after the marriage equality referendum that we had in 2015, then that's 70 years. And that's that's kind of a good span in a man's life and a country's life. You don't hold back on that um, hypocrisy. So perhaps you could um, take us there to the very beginning of your book. Yes, this is just the, the first page of the book. Um, this uh, chapter is called The Good People of Goline. Long before we discovered that he had fathered two children by two different women, one in Drimaleague and one in Clonakilty, Father James Monroe stood on the altar of the Church of Our Lady, Star of the Sea, in the parish of Goline, West Cork, and denounced my mother as a whore. The family was seated together in the second pew, my grandfather on the aisle using his handkerchief to polish the bronze plaque engraved to the memory of his parents that was nailed to the back of the woodwork before him. He wore his Sunday suit, pressed the night before by my grandmother, who twisted her jasper rosary beads around her crooked fingers and moved her lips silently until he placed his hand atop hers and ordered her to be still. My six uncles, their dark hair glistening with rose-scented lacquer, sat next to her in ascending order of age and stupidity. Each was an inch shorter than the next, and the disparity showed from behind. The boys did their best to stay awake that morning. There had been a dance the night before in Skull, and they'd come home mouldy with the drink, sleeping only a few hours before being roused by their father for mass. At the end of the row, beneath a wooden carving of the tenth station of the cross, sat my mother, her stomach fluttering in terror at what was to come. She hardly dared to look up. John Boyne reading from The Heart's Invisible Furies, from that very first page. John, I spoke to you a couple of years ago when A History of Loneliness was first published. It's directly about the sins of the church. Is this book just as angry? No, I don't think it's as angry, but I I think it's, um, it's an analysis of how Irish society has changed why it was like that in the first place and, and what's happened in those in those 70 years. I think A History of Loneliness, because it was rooted in the child abuse scandals of the church, uh, was, was something that it was full of rage in a way. 
um, I tried to make it balanced. You know, I didn't want it to be just a, a diatribe. This book has a lot more comedy in it. This is a book about prejudice, about homophobia, and also about the fears that we all have about living our lives honestly and not caring what the world thinks of us. Um, but because I'd never written comedy before, this was a, probably a lot more fun to write. And a lot of the jokes just kind of helped the flow of that first draft. As well as comedy, and it is terribly, terribly funny, there's also a lot of warmth in it. So Catherine, his mother, she was shamed and exiled by her family in that little town. But she then finds generosity. Now she meets a boy, a young man called Sean on the bus. Who's he? Sean uh, is also leaving West Cork and coming to Dublin. And uh, when they when they meet, they're both exiles. They've both been sent away from their families. We know why Catherine has been, because she's pregnant at 16, unmarried. We don't know at the start what Sean has done. We discover it within about 50 pages. But he's also a frightened young man in 1945, heading to Dublin, a city he's never been to before, um, to meet his friend, Jack Smoot, and move in with him. And the three live together for a period of months, these three very young people, trying to establish a life in Dublin until a tragedy comes along to to separate them. And you do hurl us from comedy to tragedy and then back to sort of hope again. And so I wonder what you were reaching for in terms of the scope. I mean, it is a life story, but in terms of the sort of feel of it. Well, you know, an author who I've who I've always loved is um, John Irving, who you American think? writer. Well, you acknowledge. Uh, yes, in, front, in fact, the, yeah, I, I've dedicated the book to John. He's he's been a great friend and mentor to me over the years, and his books, you know, do that. They they take a life story, and they're filled with drama and humor and tragedy, uh, and you know, and all sorts of unexpected events. And it was that kind of reach that I was looking for, in a way, to try to to try to write a sort of an epic, a big epic where. All our lives are like that. You know, we have moments of tragedy in our lives. We have moments of humour. We have moments of love and moments of loss. So I was trying to reflect that over these 600 pages and um, and try to bring it all together. It's quite difficult in a way for a novelist when you, when you are writing pages where maybe there's death and there's violence and then to twist it around the next page and have jokes. But I think if you're really focused on that, writing, if you're really disciplined with it, hopefully it should tie together. As well as warmth and humour and tragedy, there's a dose of absurdity too. Tell us about Cyril's awful adoptive parents, Charles and Maud. Uh, I, was, I, was hoping you were, I was hoping you were going to ask me about them. I think in, in all the books I've written, Charles and Maud are the two favourites, particularly Maud, his adoptive mother. And I wanted to, these adoptive parents, I didn't want them to be like Dickens characters, you know, that would be cruel to him and sort of send him up the chimney to clean it or something. Uh, I wanted them to just sort of like welcome this boy into their house and then almost from day one be sort of baffled by his presence there. So they're never unkind to him. They're never cruel. But they treat him like he's a grown man. They treat him like he's an elderly man. Actually, the way they talk to him seems cruel to me, particularly the father. Well, he tells him constantly that he's not a real Avery. Uh, that he's only adopted, but he doesn't—he doesn't say it out of meanness. It's, he says it because it's a fact, and you know they're quite comical in that way. And Cyril never gets offended by them. In fact, he—he he quite loves them, and just has to to cope. And he has to grow up very quickly because they're never going to treat him like a child. But Maud, who is his adoptive mother, is an Irish novelist 
who hates the idea of anybody reading her books. <laughs> uh, she calls it the vulgarity of popularity. So she wants to write, she wants to publish, but should she make it onto the bestsellers list? That's a great tragedy for her. I myself have no such qualms. Who were you mentioning? Anybody or an amalgam of people? She also she's in a cloud of cigarette smoke as she writes. Oh, constantly. She's yes. She practically has to fight her way out of the cigarette smoke. I wasn't really imagining. I wasn't really basing her on anybody. But on the more serious side of her character, uh, I was thinking about you know Irish. We have this thing in Ireland. We call the Irish tea towel, which uh, features eight great historical Irish writers. People like Bernard Shaw, Joyce, W.B. Yeats. Of course, they're all men. And there's always been this thing that no woman, no female writer gets onto the tea towel. This is a thing that, you know, eventually happens to Maud. But she's like, well, why does, why does anybody think it's a compliment that, you know, people can wipe their dirty coffee cups on my face? <laughs> um, but there has been, like, Ireland, as well as being a very religious society, has always had a slightly misogynist. Actually, it's not slightly at all. It's it's pretty obviously um misogynist side to it and female writers haven't always been given the same uh, due as their male counterparts so I, somebody somebody was saying to me earlier it's, it's quite a feminist book in a way and I think it is you know I, I wanted to stand up for uh, for for people like that yes because we keep on coming back to to Catherine to her story um Cyril's mother and she has to grapple with respectability with work with surviving and it's no accident, is it, that you put her right into the heart of the Irish parliamentary machine. What yes. happens to Catherine? Well, she goes to work in the Dáil, which is uh, Ireland's Parliament House, a really beautiful building in the centre of Dublin. And through that, she just sees like the various Taoiseach, that's the prime ministers over the, over the years. But she bounces in and out of Cyril's story quite a lot, while neither of them know that they are actually mother and son. And it's for the reader to think, you know, at what point are these two going to actually figure this one out? But she's a very strong character, and I, I deliberately designed her like that. Even in those that opening section that I read, as that develop, as that chapter develops, and as she is sent away from home at sixteen, she's nobody's victim. You know, she's she's determined to get on with her life. Um, she decides that the best thing she can do for her baby is to have him adopted. Um, but she she goes on to live. Um, a very independent life. She has a good spirit to her. And I, I'm always concerned with trying to write strong female characters in my books, female characters who don't uh, exist simply to react to the events, to the things that happen to the male characters. I wanted her to be a kind of a luminous presence in it and for, for the reader never to know when she was going to, to reappear. There's another luminous presence in the book, particularly in, in Cyril's life, you know, he's got this sort of odd, slightly stifling childhood, and then he meets his shining light, a beautiful boy yeah. named Julian. What does he? What does Julian represent to Cyril? Oh, everything that he isn't. <laughs> you know, uh, he comes down the stairs one day, age seven, to see this this beautiful blonde-haired boy sitting in the sitting in his front um, hallway, and just basically immediately falls in love with him. And he's the he, he's a hero to him. Um, as Cyril eventually starts to realise that he's that he himself is gay, he falls in love with Julian, who is absolutely not gay at all. And bonking and everyone. Everybody, everybody. <laughs> not inside. at seven, we should say. Uh, not at seven. Although he he does flirt pretty pretty well with um, Maud uh, at seven, Cyril's mother, and she flirts pretty well back with him. But Julian represents everything I think that Cyril wishes he was. You know that he could be this. 
great sexual person, somebody who's out there doing what he wants with who he wants, but he's so closeted, he's so frightened of his own sexuality that he can't tell anybody, not even his best friend. Well, he tries to tell somebody when he's still a boy. He tries to tell a priest. He goes to another church. He goes into the confessional and he thinks he's killed the priest. Yeah. Well, the priest says to him, you know, tell me your sins. And Cyril decides, right, I will so. And he tells him everything that is going on in his head. And, you know, he's a 14-year-old boy. I think we all know all the stuff that goes on in the mind of a 14-year-old boy. And he just pours it all out. Um, and this priest just falls out of the confessional box in a faint and dies. And this is another, it is ridiculously funny And this poor boy, this poor Cyril thinks that, you know, if you confess to being gay, you're going to kill people. Yeah, but he's also concerned about before the the priest dies, did I get absolution? You know, am I I still, am I forgiven? So that hold of the church over his imagination, over his whole way of being in the world, is that something you've had to grapple with? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the the 70s and 80s. And in those years, of course, Ireland was... uh, a great bastion of Catholicism. The church had a really strong hold over society and over people, uh, even over the government in many ways. Now, that's gone because after all those child abuse scandals came out, really the church lost its moral authority here. But And not just that, but it lost its following. You know, nobody of my age or younger uh, goes would, would go to mass. You know, it's, it's we're no longer a very religious people. So that has changed. Ireland has become a much more secular society, which I think was reflected in that marriage equality referendum almost two years ago uh, when we when we did pass that. And that was the first time. I often feel like that was almost the final chapter of that long story about the church and about the scandals, because that was the point where the country came together and said, enough of this, you know, enough. We're not going to, to stand for these rules anymore. And, and so the referendum was passed by over 60% majority. Are you writing your way into a deeper understanding of your country? Probably, I think I am, and also a deeper understanding of myself. Because for many years, because I avoided writing about Ireland, I also avoided writing about myself. And I, I almost felt that I had to keep a distance between the writer and the novel. And it's only as I've got a little older, more experienced, more confident maybe, that I feel I actually want to explore my own emotions more in in my fiction, um, my own experiences, things that happened to me growing up. John Boyne's novel The Heart's Invisible Furies is published by Doubleday and he was speaking there to Kate Evans all the way from Dublin.